The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, good to see you here today. And let's take our Bibles today and get them out. Our ushers, if you would, please distribute the study sheets. I was going through some notes last night. I came across an old story, and um, this old story was, um, was I had heard many years ago. There was this Bible college, and the, and the professor was, was teaching, and he was explaining how times are changing in America and how more households are run are being controlled by the, by the women, by the mothers and, and grandmothers, than the fathers. And when the class was over, this young Bible student came up to the, to the professor and he said, Professor, I don't agree with you. I, I think you're wrong. He said, do you think I'm wrong, young man? He said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to test this. He said, you go down to the barn and you get a wagon. You get a brown horse and a white horse. And you hook them to the, you hook them to the wagon. And you load that wagon with chickens. And you go to every farm in this valley. And you ask, who's the head of the household? And for every house you find where the man is the head of the household, you give them one of the horses. And for every farm where you find the woman runs the farm, runs the household, you give them a chicken. Young men said, well, professor, I'm going to be on foot before you know it here. There's 25 farms in this area. I only got two horses. He said, you just go ahead, young man. Don't worry about that. He said, uh, if you're not back by dark, I'll go find you. So the young man did as he was told, and he got out there. And sure enough, every farm he came to, he found that the wife was the head of the household. And he gave away chicken after chicken after chicken. And the last farm of the day, he knocked on the door and the former came to the door and he said, good afternoon, sir. He said, I'm, I'm uh, from the local Bible college and I'm, test, I'm, I'm, I'm performing an experiment today and running a survey. He said, I need to know who, who in this household runs the household. Is it you or your wife? And the former said, well, young man, I run the household here. And the young man said, well, do you mind if we ask your wife that question? So he called the wife over and he asked her and she said, well, young man, my husband runs this household. He makes all the decisions, and I do whatever he says. The young man says, well, hallelujah. He says, you folks get a horse. Which horse would you like? Would you like the brown horse or the white horse? The former said, well, I think I'd like to have the brown horse. The wife said, well, now, wait a minute. Maybe, we, maybe we'd like the white horse. And the former said, no, 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 we want, we want the brown horse. And the wife put her hands on her hips and looked at him very sternly and said, we want the white horse. So the farmer looked at the young man and said, we'll take the white horse. The young man said, no, 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 you're going to take a chicken. So I remember, came across that old story, I thought I'd, thought I'd share it with you, it's real funny. All right, everyone should have a study sheet. Well, uh, we've been studying the grace of God for quite a while now, about six months, I think. And um, we're going to sum it all up here over the next few lessons that I teach. Uh, so we're going to, uh, the grace of God, the summation. And um, so we're going to look today at, at, at some thoughts that we 
we, we went through, we went through many things. We, we defined grace. We described grace. We talked about grace deliberately bestowed. We talked about the decrees of grace, uh, and all these things. And we looked at grace from just about every angle you can look. However, a study of the grace of God would take much more than a lifetime, uh, to fully discover, uh, all of the truth of found in the grace of God would, would take, we, we could not possibly do it with our finite wisdom and understanding and in this lifetime. But we've, we've done the best we could to look at grace from many angles and show the, the, the great wonder of the grace of God. Uh, and, and today I'm going to try to, in, in, in a few lessons, try to sum it all up and, and put it in a way that, that we can, that we in our human minds can, can fathom the grace of God. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Uh, and, and what a wonderful song that was. And we looked at that song through this, through this study. But today I want to look today, number one, at the majesty of grace. The majesty of grace. Turn with me to First Chronicles chapter 29, if you would. And we're just going to read a couple of verses there. First Chronicles chapter 29, one might say, wow, going to the Old Testament to look at the grace of God. Yes, the grace of God was evident from Genesis chapter 1 forward. And uh, we want to make sure that we understand that. But look at 1 Chronicles chapter 29 with me. Beginning in verse 10. Verse number 10, we read, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, as we speak about your marvelous, matchless grace, I pray you'd, you'd give us a, a comprehension for how wonderful it truly is. And Lord, that we would appreciate your grace every moment of our lives. We'd never take it for granted, never misuse it, and always, Lord, be thankful for the wonderful grace of Jesus. Thank you for this, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the majesty of God's grace. David here talks about majesty belonging to the Lord. And all glory, he says, all honor, victory, power, all of these words he uses to describe God the Father. And certainly, uh, if, if we take the time to, to think about God, we would have to come away with a feeling of, of, of humility and a feeling of great inferiority as we consider the wonder that is God the Father. Have you ever done that? Have you ever stopped just to think about, about God? We, have, we lead busy lives. We're very busy. Uh, we're very active and and sometimes it's hard to find just a few moments to, to, to sit back and, and think about that. I can recall when I was a boy, uh, life was much simpler then. <laughs> uh, when I was a boy, it wasn't as complicated as it is today. It wasn't as complex. We didn't have, we didn't have video games and, and, and uh, all these games that kids have today. Uh, we went out in the backyard, found a worm, and played with it. That was our companion for the day. If he, if he made it through the day. And when he died, we'd put him on a hook and go catch a fish with him. So, um, but that's about what we did when I was a boy. But I can, I can remember as a boy laying, going in my daddy's backyard. He had a big field of clovers. 
And any of you who have ever been around a field of clovers, you know that clovers are always cool. It doesn't matter how hot it is outside. If you lay down in a bed of clovers, you're going to be cool as a cucumber. And I used to lay in that bed of clovers and just look up at the sky. And I would look into the blue vastness of the sky and just think for a moment, that never ends. There's no end to that. If I traveled that direction for centuries, I still wouldn't be near the end of the universe. And, and I used to think about that, even as a child, how magnificent and how wonderful God really is. You know, and it's, it's, so, it's so good for us to take time, to take just even a few moments a day and, and, and get away from all distractions. I, I preached a couple of Sundays ago about the, the, the noise in our lives. To get away from that noise and listen to that little voice of God and just contemplate and comprehend the vastness of God, the majesty of God's grace. Uh, this is something that I, I've thought about since the day I was saved. Um, I was not a very nice person. I was not a very, very good person. Some may say I'm still not. I don't know. But um, I was the type of person, honestly, probably you wouldn't want to be friends with. Uh, you wouldn't want to hang around with before I was, I was saved. Uh, I'm not proud of that. I'm very... I'm very ashamed when I say that, but that's the way I, I was. I was not a nice person. And when God saved me, he changed me. He changed me completely. And I've just been so amazed all these years, 30, 35 years, going on 35 years. I've just been amazed at how I've never gotten over the fact that God loved me and that he called me to be his child. I've just never gotten past that truth. I, I hope I never do. And you know, I hope you never do. It's such a wonderful thing to, to, to feel in your heart and to know in your heart that you are God's child, that you are safe in his arms, safe in his hands. It's just so magnificent. And when I think about God's grace, I'm, I'm, I'm just astounded by the majesty of the grace of God, how majestic it is and how, how thorough and complete it is. So today I want to look at the majesty of grace. First thing I want to say is this. The majesty of grace is seen in the plan of grace. God's majesty is seen in his plan. Now in Romans chapter 3 verses 23 through 25 we read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now here Paul talks about uh, our, our forgiveness, our redemption through the, through the action of Christ, through the propitiation of Christ. Now, propitiation is... Is this? It's the atonement or the atoning sacrifice offered to God to satisfy his wrath and render him propitious or favorable toward sinners. So when we talk about the, the propitiation of Christ, we're talking, about, uh, we're talking about the atonement that Christ made on our behalf. Uh, God planned to extend his grace unto those whom he has called. 
These are they that were chosen in him from the foundation of the world. God's grace was established before anything was made. In Ephesians chapter uh, number 1 we read, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Look at that verse. I want you to turn to it. Ephesians chapter 1. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4. It's one thing to hear the truth of God, but it's another thing to see it yourself. Look at verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul said, according as he, he being God, hath chosen us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world. So before God even framed the world, he chose to save us. He chose us by name. He chose to redeem us. He knew us. He knew that he knew who we were going to be and what we were going to be, yet he loved us and he chose us. We were chosen in Christ before God created man. Now, this truth negates the idea that salvation is found in man's coming to an understanding of and submission to God by his own awareness. So in other words, the fact that God chose me in eternity past, before he even framed the world, negates the idea that I gathered enough understanding in my lifetime to come to a point where I chose Christ. That's not the case at all. The, case, the truth is, Jesus said, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Um. This rather supports the truth that salvation exists only in the specific plan and determinate will of God. This deliberate planning of God demonstrates his absolute sovereignty over all matters of faith and redemption. God is supremely sovereign over salvation. Uh, he chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. He calls those. Uh, well, let me, let me correct my statement. He chooses, he chooses who will be saved. He doesn't, he doesn't choose who will not be saved. All men are sinners. All men are lost. And, and it is not God deciding to send me to hell that sends me to hell. Okay? Understand that. It's my sin that condemns me to hell. But God chooses to redeem a people unto himself. So it's his sovereign choice. Now this deliberate planning of God demonstrates, as I said, his absolute sovereignty over all matters of faith and redemption. If salvation is not by the sovereign will of God, then grace cannot be considered under the sole control of God. If God is not sovereign in salvation, then he cannot, he's not in control of who does and does not receive his grace. Um, there would have to exist an additional avenue apart from God's determined, planned, and sovereign will whereby redeeming grace is bestowed upon men. 
this errant line of doctrine leaves us with the conclusion that the bestowment of God's grace is dependent upon you and me. In other words, if God is not sovereign in choosing to redeem me, then that means that God's grace is or is not bestowed based upon me, not based upon him. You understand that? So if I control, if I control whether or not I'm going to be saved, then God has no sovereignty in his own grace. Because his grace cannot be bestowed upon someone who's not saved. So if, I, if I'm the one that determines whether or not I get saved, then I'm also the one who determines whether or not God's grace is given. So God's grace, by its very nature, is, is his bestowment of favor upon me. And that can only be under his control. It cannot be upon my control. Now, when God chooses and calls me, when God, when God regenerates me, when God opens my eyes and reveals to me truth, then my human will chooses to believe and trust in Christ. But it could not, my own human will will not make that choice unless God first acts upon me. And unless God first regenerates me, first of all, brings me from a state of, of being dead to a state of being alive, and then reveals to me the truth of his word. Because remember, the scripture tells us that natural man cannot receive the things of Christ. Only, only the spirit can bestow upon man truth. So once God, once God regenerates me and his spirit acts upon me, then I, in, with my own free will, choose to believe and choose to receive Christ. Yes, my will does play a part in all of this. But my will does not supersede God's will. I must understand that. My will does not act first. God's will acts first. Then my will acts. And then throughout my life, the grace of God, which is bestowed on me, again, works according to its power in my, uh, uh, upon my own will and causes me to choose to do the right things. I choose to do right with my will, but only because the Holy Spirit of God enables me to do so. So we have to understand this, that God's grace is sovereign in himself. Um, I've heard it stated that God chose not to redeem the fallen angels. Uh, And if, uh, if this were true, then why would God not have the same sovereign choice over man? If God... If God chose not to redeem angels, then he can choose not to redeem man if he so chooses. And so we understand that, that God's grace is given, to, is given to whom he bestows it upon. Uh, we see in Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And we see that That man is lower than the angels because when Jesus became a man, he became lower than the angels. But he became a sacrifice so that you and I would know God and and, and obtain eternal life. Now, since we all know that all men are not saved, then we can't conclude from Hebrews 2.9 that Christ tasted death for all of, of mankind. What he did was to taste death. For the whole of the body of believers, the elect of God, that God has called and chosen. And this was in accordance to the will of God, according to his foreknowledge and his purpose in eternity past. 
So all of this confirms that grace, all of this confirms that grace is the result of God's planning and purpose. And it proves the majesty of God's grace. It proves that God is majestic in, in, in his plan of, 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 of grace, in his plan of salvation. And God, we know, is just and fair. So we know that God uh, did not choose man according to favoritism or according to man's ability, but according to God's own will and purpose, he chose those that he would, that he would save. And you know, I, personally, I, I don't argue with that fact. I may not, I may not perfectly understand it, but I'm not going to argue about that fact. I'm just thankful that God called me. Amen? I'm thankful that he chose me. I'm not going to question his, his choice in the matter. I wouldn't have chosen someone like me. Personally, I wouldn't have. If I was making the choice, I wouldn't have chosen someone like me. But God did. And I don't know why, but I'm just glad he did. Very thankful. So first, majesty is seen in, in, uh, in the in the, in the plan of grace. Secondly, letter B, the majesty of God's grace is seen in the provision of grace. First, in its planning, God, we see that, God, that God's majesty is seen in the way that he, that he planned grace and, and, and in his sovereign will. Secondly, we see it in the provision of grace. In Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness and hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, uh, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of our God and Savior, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So again, we see that, uh, that, that the Lord states very clearly that uh, he has chosen his people, his God's elect, Paul said, and that uh, he has provided for us the grace necessary for salvation. Now, what good is a plan if you cannot put it into effect? Uh, we, we spoke a moment ago about God's plan in grace. Well, what good is planning something if you can't do it? It's, it's, a, it's a waste of time, right? It's a waste of time to sit down and, and plan things out and figure out how you're going to do all of this and how you're going to make all this happen if you can't even do it. I mean, what's the sense in that? You may as well take that time and do something else with it. And what good would be served by Christ's death at Calvary if God could not provide the grace for which Jesus died? I mean, think about that for a moment. How big of a fool, and I use that term very cautiously, but how big of a fool would Jesus be to die on the cross if, in fact, God was not able to provide the grace for which Jesus died. I mean, that would make no sense, would it? If someone came to me and said, look, give me your son. And if you give me your son, I can, I can make everybody else better. 
And I, I, would, I would make the ultimate sacrifice and say, okay, take my son and make everyone else better. And then he, he took and sacrificed my son and was unable to deliver what he said. I wouldn't be very happy. And believe me, I'm not the kind of person you don't want to have happy. It, God, God would be a fool. He would be a fool if he was not able to, to provide the grace that, that Jesus died for. So we can, we can easily establish that fact. The majesty or authority, if you will, of grace is seen in God's ability to provide the grace to those whomsoever he determines to redeem. Again, we go back to the fact that if salvation rests on the personal will of man and not the sovereign choice of God, then the provision of grace would also rest on the will of man and not on the will of God. So, again, we, 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 do, have, we do have our own will, and our will acts once it's been acted upon by the will of God. But if, if we are to assume that God does not have the authority to provide the grace for which he's, 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 he's chosen, then it would all depend on us. And do you understand that if it depends on us, it's not going to be equitable? It's not going to be ethical. I mean, do you think that man as a whole acts ethically and equitably? No. No, we don't. So the distribution of grace would be with favoritism. It would be given only to those that we like. And not to those that we don't like. And God doesn't... doesn't factor things that way. God, God is equitable. He's just. He's fair. He, he does things according to his own will and purpose. So, so we know that the provision of grace is by God's authority. And, and it's under his sovereign will and his sovereign control. In other words, if, if we believe that, that grace rests upon us to determine, then it, we would have to say that it would be relevant to man's condition. But what is man's condition? Well, in Romans chapter 3, the Lord is very specific as to man's condition. He says, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And God pronounces us all as sinners. All under sin. None of us righteous. Apart from the nature of Christ. So this places all of us under the penalty of sin. Uh, and, and unsaved men are all spiritually dead. And the only way to return from being dead is to be made alive again. And only those whom God has called and chosen will he make alive again by grace through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he, being God, quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So we see that Jesus himself has 
has, has um, made, made atonement for our sin. He has, he has paid our sin debt by his death on the cross. His blood was shed as a sacrifice for you and as a sacrifice for me. And it is God that provides the grace to you and me. So we see the majesty of God's grace uh, this morning, seen in the plan of grace. And then we see the majesty of God's grace in, in the provision of his grace, his ability, his authority, his power to provide the grace that he has promised to those to whom he has promised it. But then thirdly today, and lastly, I want us to see the majesty of God's grace as seen in the perseverance of grace. In the perseverance of grace. In Titus chapter 2, Paul writes in verses 11 through 14, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, notice again, uh, verse 14, if, you, if, you, if you're there, uh, if you want to take a look at it, go to Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Paul again says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So, in this grace of God, we see the provision for us to live holy and righteously in verse in verse uh, eleven and verse twelve, he said, "Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, uh, righteously, and godly in this present world." Well, how are we going to do that? How is sinful man going to live that type of life? Because unless God acts upon us, we will sin. Left to himself, left to his own nature, left to his own ability, man will always ultimately choose to sin. Uh, we see in scripture uh, the depravity of man. Wicked imaginations continually devised in the heart of man. The mind of man is corrupt. We can't deny that. You can't deny that you've had thoughts in your lifetime that make even you repulse. You can't deny that you've desired to do things that are just not right to do. That's the heart of man. That's the mind of man. It's corrupt. It's evil. It's wicked. It's depraved. And unless God change it, we will stay that way. But when we were saved, when we were redeemed by Christ, when we were made alive again, when we were regenerated, and the Spirit, Holy Spirit of God dwells within and acts upon us and gives us a conscience and, and, and teaches us 
true things and righteousness. God has enabled us, he has empowered us through the Holy Spirit to live in this present life soberly, righteously, and godly. And, and we need to understand that. And that's why in verse 14, uh, the Bible says that he will preserve to himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. It's amazed me over the year how over the years how, how Christian people are by and large are zealous to do the right things. You give you put you put people you put Christian people in the right environment with the right motivations and they're zealous to do the right things. Left to ourselves and uh, apart from the from the grace of God, we won't do these things. So we see this. So we see the perseverance of God's grace. Um, from the statement, I must surmise that Christ fully intends to make good on his promise to redeem me and to give me eternal life. Because he's, he's called me to be a peculiar people. I remember years ago, um, we went to a youth conference that was, and it was, its basic theme was be a weirdo for Christ. Now, I don't want us to all run around being weirdos. Uh, that's not what that's not what we're talking about here. And and oftentimes, I mean, oftentimes the world considers God's people to be strange, do they not? I mean, people who truly try to live godly in this present world, they're considered to be a little a little strange, aren't they? And and Hollywood it project it it portrays the godly preacher as the fruitcake, as a nut, right? On their sitcom shows, he's always the weirdo, he's always the one that's that's uh uh, odd and laughed at and, and ridiculed and mocked and, 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 and the truth of the matter is to this world we are to this world we are peculiar people to this world we are weirdos and, and so God has enabled us and, and his, through perseverance of his grace we're able to, to live godly in this life now I'm certain today all of us here I believe, or believers, therefore we believe in the security of the believer. The fact that we can't lose our salvation. In John chapter 5 and verse 13, John wrote, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, that ye may believe on the grace, on the name of the Son of God. And that word, that, that, that um, the, the uh, term believe here, is used in a continuing form, so it's, it really means that we can continue to believe. That we can keep on believing in Jesus uh, in our lives. So, it's in the future tense. It's in the future perfect tense. So, it, me, it denotes continued action. So, if we paraphrase this verse, it would mean that ye may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And so, God's grace perseveres. It continues to work in our life through, through difficulties, through disappointments, through, through trials, through sorrows. We come through those with a continuing faith. <clears throat> we come through those with a continued belief. And we keep, we keep believing in Christ. And we keep living for God. And we keep trying to do the right thing, even though we have failed at times. Why? Because God's grace perseveres. God doesn't give up on us. God called us, he chose us, he, he redeemed us, he saved us, and he, he in interacts with us. He lives with us, he, he works through us. He doesn't give up on us. 
You know, one of the things I always loved about my father is no matter what I did, I'm talking about my earthly father, no matter what I did, my daddy loved me. Now, my daddy, he might, he might have disciplined me. I'm going to use a word that's unheard of today, but he spanked me. Boy, did he spank me. But he did it in love. And I knew he loved me. But my daddy never gave up on me. No matter what I did, he never gave up on me. Sometimes he'd sit there and he'd shake his head and he'd say, son, what were you thinking of? I know, you, I know you can do better than that, so let's work together and let's make this right. And daddy never gave up on me. And you know what? God never gives up on us. He never gives up on us. We can sin 10 million times. He'll forgive us 10 million times. No. Don't go around sin. Don't go say, brother, don't say I can sin 10 million times. Or here's one. No, that's not what I'm saying. But God won't give up on you. His grace perseveres. His grace for me today is as strong as it was when I got saved 35 years ago. It hasn't weakened. It hasn't diminished. It, it won't deplete. It perseveres. God will make good on his promises. He will redeem us as he promised. Paul knew this. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul said, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know uh, whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul said, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to do all the things I have to do because I know that God keeps his word. I know that God is going to save me. I know he's going to redeem me. I know his grace will persevere. The grace that God has bestowed to us cannot be taken away and it will not fail. So God's grace is it's majestic. It's, it's his majesty. The majesty of grace is seen in God's plan of grace. The majesty of grace is seen in God's provision of his grace to us. And the majesty of the grace of God is seen in the perseverance of his grace. You know, I wish I could stand here and say, you know, after 34 and a half years of salvation that I've never let God down, I've never failed him. I wish I could say that. I really do, but I can't. I'd be a liar if I did. I've let God down, I'm sure. I've, I've failed him many times. But he still loves me. He loves me as much today as he did the day he saved me. He still... He still works in my life as much today as he did the first day I was saved. He still enables me and gives me the authority to live for him and the ability to live for him today as he did the first day I was saved. What a majestic grace. What a majestic God. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I'm his child. All right, folks. Well, that's all we have time for this morning. So we'll look at another uh, summarization of the grace of God in two weeks. Have a great day, and you are dismissed. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.